Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I am sitting with Avidan Friedman, a rabbi and an educator at the Hartman Institute who is also involved in an organization called Yanshuf, which is actually the Hebrew word for owl, the animal owl, O-W-L, but it's also an abbreviation as we'll learn in a minute. And Avidan is very involved in a project that I think is really extraordinary, but we'll hear about that in a, in a moment. So first of all, just thank you very much for taking the time to have this conversation. And uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, first of all, how you ended up in Israel, where you grew up and all of that, and then we'll get to the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for, for having me. It's really an honor to be with you. Um, my name is Avidan. I was born in Calgary. I grew up in, in Canada, in Montreal. Um, I grew up in a very Zionist home. Um, my parents were both very involved and actually met through the religious Zionist movement, through B'nai Akiva, um, were married, made Aliyah, and then um, after realizing that the kibbutz life, which was the Zionist thing to do then, was not for them, uh, they returned, but they raised us as very, very strong Zionists with Zionist music and, and attachment on a deep, deep level. Um, I learned for um, two years in Yeshivat Haritzion, in the Gush, um, and then continued studying in Yeshiva University, did a, a first degree in philosophy and psychology, um, and then worked full-time um, all along working in, in B'nai Akiva, but then actually working full-time in B'nai Akiva in the national office, um, creating programs, creating educational materials, um, and really through and through um, being in, engaged in Zionist education, which is really my, my passion and, um, and my love. Um, I studied in Azraeli and did a, a master's degree there. Um, That's the education school at Yeshiva University? Yes, exactly. I did a, a master's degree in Jewish education um, and also a rabbinical degree at Yeshiva Chovavei Torah. Um, and then I worked for a few years as a teacher. Along the way, also got married and we had a number of children. And from for both of us, my wife and I, Devorah, um, and I, we... From the first date, we were both Aliyah-minded. From the first date, we wouldn't have considered anything other than Aliyah. And the question was, was just when and when would we do it? Um, and thank God the, the time finally came in 2010. Um, Devorah finished her degree in, in art therapy and it was time for us to, um, to make Aliyah. And um, we came on Aliyah with two little kids, um, Shefa and Achliel. And, um, and I started working at, Hartman, um, at the Hartman Institute's high school from literally the day after I stepped off the plane. Okay, that's amazing. Actually, my wife and I actually also from the first date uh, knew that she wanted to make Aliyah and I did not want to make Aliyah. Mm -hmm. So you can see actually who makes the decisions in our marriage. But okay, uh, we're very happy that we're here and I'm grateful to her for having had the vision that she had. 
so you've been teaching at Hartman for a very long time, and uh, my kids actually went to Hartman, and it's an amazing school, so we could have a great conversation about Israeli education in general and what open Orthodox education is like, and that's a separate conversation. Maybe we'll do it sometime. But along the road, you got sparked by another issue beyond living in Israel, beyond raising your children and being in a family and teaching high school. Um, what's the issue, and how did you get involved in it? Right. I came to Israel very much um, from a sense, as I said, a, a sense of mission, a sense of, of Zionism, and very much the idea that, that the Zionist project is, is ongoing. It's not done, and there's a lot of work to do, and I want to be part of that work. And for me, I felt like the, the best way that I could contribute was, was as an educator, was as a teacher. Um, and I was very, very happy doing that. But one day, we, we brought a speaker um, to our students. What year is um, this about? This is in, um, in 2017. Oh, so not that long um, ago, four years ago. This is for, for now, January 2017, Asara TV. I remember exactly the day. Um, I've been teaching for a number of years. Um, we'd actually heard from him. His name is El Yosef, um, and he is an educator, but also an activist through and through. Um, we'd heard from him the previous year um, about the story of Roe Wallenberg, and um, Asara TV is, uh, is a fast day that also commemorates, it's also commemorated as Yom HaKadisha Kali. It's the day that we were commemorate the, the Holocaust in a sense also in the Jewish calendar. So we brought to the school somebody to speak about Raoul Wallenberg, um, who saved um, maybe even the most as a, as a single individual, uh, the most Jewish lives, tremendous amount of, of Jewish lives in the Holocaust at, at great, great, great um, personal expense. Um, the first time we heard Ellie speak, he spoke about the legacy of Raoul Wallenberg and the end of his speech was about Jonathan Pollard. And it was about the way that, unfortunately, after Raoul Wallenberg sacrificed himself to save so many Jews, he was taken captive by the Soviets, and, and Israel afterwards didn't do anything to try to bring him back. This is what, what Eli said. Um, and, and part of the message that he brought to us about that was, we have Jonathan Pollard. Jonathan Pollard, of course, is a, is a huge issue in, uh, of its own right. Um, but, but what are we doing to, to bring him back? And how are we not repeating that mistake? So that was the first time I heard him. He came back, it was a number of years later, and the Jonathan Pollard issue had, had kind of finished up. And I said, okay, so, so Ellie, what's your, you know, what's your epilogue now? What, what's, what do you speak about now? And he said, well, actually, um, actually I, I discovered that we're involved in something much, much worse. Um, we... It's not just that we are, we are abandoning our own person as we abandon someone else who worked for us, but, but we're abandoning our mission in a very deep way. And we're abandoning spoke, the Zionist mission. The, the, the Zionist mission and the reason that we're here. And he spoke after speaking with the students about Raoul Wallenberg about the issue of Israeli weapons exports um, and the countries to which Israel authorizes weapons exports. And, and I was shocked. I'd never really heard about this issue before. I, you know, in all of my years of Zionist education, somehow it, I missed the fact that um, not as of last week or last year, but but for for a long time since we could say the seventies, um, Israel has sold weapons um, to many of the world's uh, most brutal and, um, and 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 oppressive regimes. And, and, and I was really, I was really shocked and I, I wanted to kind of go into denial. Um, I wanted to, to push it away, but, but the way Ali um, brought it to us in such an authentic way, and it's, it's an issue that to this day, he is still very, very, very committed to, to the level of, um, to the level I aspire to myself. Um, 
he brought it to me in such an authentic way, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't close my eyes. So before we talk about what you started to do in response to learning about this, let's just tell our listeners something about what's actually transpiring. First of all, there was a story that came out this summer about a, soft, a piece of software, as I understand it, you'll correct me, but a piece of software that Israel was or Israeli companies were making available and how was that being used? But then there were cases long before. So what kinds of regimes, which regimes, what kinds of weaponry, what's it being used for? Fill us in on sort of the, the reality to which you and he are responding and you and many others, of course. Um, absolutely. So I, I'll, uh, you know, join me in, in the journey of, of education that I did at that moment, because that was really, that was the next step is to understand, wait, is it, is it really, is it really so? And in a sense, I feel like for the last four and a half years, I've been looking for someone to tell me, no, it ain't so. No, it's, <laughs> it's not really like that. Don't worry. Go, go back to, go back to work. Um, but, but actually the more I've, I've dug, the more I've, I've understood, um, how, how, compelling this this problem is um so the nso story is really the very the latest as you said in, in a long string of stories um the story with with nso nso is a um now very and, and for a number of years now it's been a very infamous uh israeli company um which has developed um cyber attack software called pegasus which um, might be on my phone right now. Hi, Pegasus. Maybe not, but chances are. I'm hoping my, my uh, activities have been important enough that it's there. Um, what it does is Pegasus basically turns your smartphone into the person who is using Pegasus into their, into their tool in every, in every single way, in every shape and form. They can turn the phone on. They can record your conversations. They can take pictures. They can mine whatever data you want. They can use their phone at any way, in any way that they want to. Um, and what's very, very powerful about Pegasus um, is that it is able to do this sometimes with zero click infiltration, which means that you don't even have to do anything. Sometimes, you know, you get a, a suspicious link and you say, okay, I'm not gonna click on that. But, but NSO developed some ways to infiltrate phones without the need even to click. So some of their, um, some of their software is, is zero click, some of it's one click. Um, but that's the software. It's an inc incredibly, incredibly powerful tool. Now, the tool in and of itself is, is very scary, um, very powerful. It could be used for good. Um, you know, in theory, it certainly could be used by governments and it is used by some governments, presumably, to maintain law and order, to fight terrorism, to do legitimate things. Um, but, um, and this is what, what came out um, this summer, but it's come out a number of times. Um, the difference is this summer it was it was a project that spanned countries and spanned really the the journalistic investigative work of major outlets in the United States, in France, in all over the world, um, and they wanted to look into who is Pegasus targeting and who who is being targeted. And what they found, what they discovered, was that Pegasus is being used by numerous oppressive regimes in order not to target terrorists and bad guys and drug dealers, but to target journalists and activists and, and politicians. Um, it may have been used to target um, Emmanuel Macron, the, the president of France. It may have been used to, um, it may have been used in the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. Um, and, and so, um, so this huge story came out in the summer and all over this huge story is Israeli spyware 
that is used to um, to to help to aid and abet the the most oppressive regimes um, to do the worst things um, to do the most uh, the most heinous acts that undermine democracy all over the world. So that was kind of, you know, again, going back to my Zionist vision of, you know, of Israel and what it has to, to contribute to the world. And we talk about the startup nation and, and, and Israeli startups. And here is a genius Israeli startup, but that's being used to, to destroy the world. That's being used to, to wreak so much havoc and, and to cause so much suffering. Um, in Israel, since then, the, the picture is, the, the story has kind of been quieted down. Um, NSO's claim is that they will investigate any, any misuse um, because they only um, allow governments to use their, their software in legitimate ways. Uh, and Israel said for its part that it will investigate if, um, if NSO got a license um, and, and violated the terms of that license because NSO is as cyber as a cyber software which is defined as as a weapon it's defined as a weapon they need to get a license from the Ministry of Defense in, in fact any weapons export as of 2007 needs to get a license from the Ministry of Defense the problem with what NSO says and the problem with what Israel says is the following NSO is we'll, we'll, we'll start with Israel Israel essentially gave the, the license to NSO to sell to the United Arab Emirates, to sell to Mexico, to sell to numerous governments that are known for their human rights abuses. Um, they're well known for the way they track citizens and the way they fight against dissidents in ways that undermine um, freedom of speech and, and, and expression. Um, now, it could be that Israel did give NSO a license to do that. And, and then as far as Israel is concerned, well, NSO got a license to do that and, and did that. So as far as Israel is concerned, that's fine. Now, NSO says, well, okay, but when we go to these dictatorships, we tell them to be nice. We tell them, don't use this, don't use this badly, right? You go to the, to the class bully and you give him a, a pistol and say, or a, or a club and say, yeah, but don't use it. So it could very well be that, that NSO told them in the strictest terms, do not misuse our uh, our weapon. Once they give it over, NSO has no control really over how it's used, or do they? That's something that NSO has said different things about over the years. At times they've said, once we put it in their hands, it's, it's out of our hands. And at times they've said, we always have control and we can kill it at a moment's notice. So it's, it's hard to know. Uh, it's hard to know what the truth is. What do third party experts say about that? Um, in... in th in terms of the technology, it's it's a possibility. It's a, it's it's certainly possible for there to be to be a, a kill switch on on these types of technologies. Part of part of the question um, it is um, part of the question that's that's very very hard to figure out is is how uh, how involved is NSO in in the actual targeting? Huh. Um, and and in their defense, they've they've said you know we we're not we're not the ones who are saying who are who are choosing the targets or helping to choose the targets or involved once a target is chosen. So maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. But even, even if it's not true, again, I, I go back to, you know, to, to the fundamental analogy. If your Israel is giving a license to provide weapons of mass destruction in a sense and weapons of mass oppression to the governments that are known to use it in that way, I think we have a responsibility and, um, and I think we can do a lot better.
So now we know that, of course, NSO, which is the most recent high-profile high story, uh, is hardly the first instance of this. And maybe give us a little bit of history here. Uh, Israel, not really Israel, right? It's Israeli companies with Israel's approval. Is that is that correct? For the, for the most part, that's correct. Right. Okay, so let's, uh, when there's an exception to that, you'll correct me. But by and large, these are Israeli arms companies that are manufacturing whatever. Give us some of the, you know, three or four of the, the most blatant examples of the kinds of regimes or the actual regimes to which Israeli companies have sold weapons and what kinds of weaponry have we been selling? So, so the, first of all, I can't absolutely know for certain, meaning whatever I do know and whatever I say is apparently only, only the tip of the iceberg because everything is classified. Israel does not uh, release any information about the particular countries that it sells to or the particular things it sells to countries. That is all kept tightly, tightly under wraps. So Israel will say which continents it sells to and which types of things, but country by country, um, the, the, the mask of, uh, and the, the veil of, of, of silence is, is able to maintain a, a certain level of, 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 you know, uncertainty. I don't know where exactly. Um, but what we what we do know we know from very often the countries are very um, are very feel very proud to speak about the Israeli weapons they're getting um, because uh, because they're good stuff they're they're very good weapons they're very um, they're very effective the the president of the Philippines Rodrigo Duterte who is accused of of serious human rights violations in his war on crime and war on drugs. Just which, shooting people in the street um, without any due process. At without all. without any due process. Um, when he met with Ruby Rivlin, he said, "I love to buy Israeli guns for my police because Israel doesn't place any limitations on how we use those guns. Israel isn't like the United States or China." <laughs> so so here we are. We are we are not only not on the. Not, not on the level morally in terms of the limitations of, of the United States, but somehow China. Israel just allows free reign when it... So, so the Philippines is, is one example. I mean, the short way that, that I, I say to, to summarize the countries that we sell to, probably, um, is I, took a, I looked at the, a list of countries that there is a genocide warning about them. Um, from the, there's a project of a genocide watch um, from the, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. And, and they have a whole list of, of about 30 countries. If you take away all of the countries that are not our direct enemy, um, it's almost all. Almost any country that is not our direct enemy that is interested in, in arms, um, we're, we're willing to sell them. We're willing to sell them arms. So specifically, specifically um, right now in uh, Honduras and in Cameroon, um, and um, and in the Ivory Coast and Eritrea and Ethiopia. Eritrea and Ethiopia right now are involved in a very, very bloody conflict in the Tigray region. Um, there's a, a, a hundreds of thousands of people that are, are dying of famine as a result of this conflict. And Eritrea and Ethiopia are both clients um, of, of the Israeli weapons industry. Um, so we're supplying both sides. When Eritrea and Ethiopia are fighting against, uh, against Tigray oh, okay, together. Sure. Okay, sure. Um, and, um, and, uh, again, there is, 
Um, I'm not coming to say that that those they are fighting against are a you know are, are angels and and are just in this case there's an armed conflict, um, but we are supplying one side of this conflict in this case, um, and that side is um, accused of many awful human rights violations. Um, and part of the story specifically there is also that the world knows very little about it because they've done a very good job of shutting down the internet. And that also is Israeli technology. In other words, that's enabling. So again, going back to NSO and, and, and those types of things, there's a cutting edge now of weapons, which isn't just guns. It's also guns, but there's also a cutting, weapon, a cutting edge of all kinds of technologies. When I started to get involved in, in this issue in, in 2017, I had the quote-unquote good fortune um, of, of really being able to see um, the live uh, the development of, of one story um, as far as, as weapons exports, which was the, the exports to Burma, to Myanmar. Um, and in, um, in August 2017, um, a genocide um, began in earnest in Myanmar that was perpetrated by the government against a Muslim minority um, known as the Rohingya, um, about a million, uh, a community of about a million people. Um, and as we know, with genocide, it didn't start in August. It didn't happen in a day. It was something that was, that was already happening. Um, and there were already warnings. Again, um, the Genocide Watch said... Um, months and months before, already in 2014 and 2015, there were reports that there's imminent genocide that is going to happen against the Rohingya who were discriminated against for many, many years. And the Burmese government started to, to engage in more and more and more violations. There was a, a massacre in October of 2016. In January 2017, there was a petition to the Israeli Supreme Court regarding Israeli weapons exports. Who petitioned? Uh, Itai Mak. Itai Mak is one of my heroes. Um, he is, I'd say along with Eli Yosef, the two people who have been dedicating years and years, Itai Mak for more than a decade, has been dedicated to this issue, working almost alone. Um, and, and really trying to work in uh, as a lawyer on the, on the legal level, um, trying to get the Supreme Court to intervene and, and to do something about this. Um, so he petitioned the Supreme Court because there were many proofs that Israeli weapons were being sold to the Burmese. The Burmese, we have a, a, a long-standing relationship with the, uh, with the government there, with the military junta, which, which overthrew the government there, which the, with the military um, echelons, which were behind a so-called democratic government. We have a long-standing relationship with them. Um, and, um, and there were pictures from Facebook of the uh, of the the, the general um, of the the Burmese forces who was um, who was putting on Facebook the 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 tour he got of the Israeli weapons industry and I went to this place and I went to that place and I ordered this and I ordered that literally, in Israel in Israel literally on on Facebook um, and so we had um, we had we had that as proof Itai had that as proof there was also a uh, one weapons company that that accidentally put up a picture of Israeli forces training the Burmese elite forces and and it said it on the website in Israel or training them there training them there uh, which is so which Israeli is, which, Israeli soldiers are being sent to Burma absolutely which is another uh, another element another aspect of the story um, the the Israeli so former soldiers, former generals who are going to to these countries and are training, uh, who are training these forces. Now, the um, ones who went to Burma are 
active service soldiers or they are now released people who are being quote unquote hired? Um, those were, were people who were being hired. Those weren't, those weren't active soldiers. There is now in Tzahal, there is actually a wing which, which um, will host countries um, and, and, and provide training to certain countries. Um, and there was an awful um, description from, from the IDF itself saying something like, in an age where you can buy a kidney, you can also buy and sell weapons and weapons training. And, and here we are so proud of all of these people who were coming in training. And this is a, um, it's, it's a moneymaker um, for these private companies. And, and it's also a moneymaker um, for, for the IDF as well. Um, and that's the mo- that that's of course the motivation, right? This is about money at the end of the day. It's a money maker. What's 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 the Israeli government's incentive to allow this? Is it money for the government? Is it money for the companies? Is it money for the IDF? Why does the quote unquote Israeli establishment allow the use of Israeli know how and Israeli weaponry to go to places that are undeniably horrible? Um, so it's, um, it's, it's a lot of answers there. Um, it's the money as well. I'll, I'll backtrack just a moment to finish the Burma, um, story if, um, uh, if that's okay. Um, where there's this petition in, oh, uh, right. in Thank January, <laughs> um, there's a petition in January and, and first the Supreme court tells him, well, if it's so urgent and, and there are massacres in October, then why do you wait to January? And then it pushes off the discussion until September. In the meantime, in, in August, things, as everybody predicted and as anybody who, who, who was looking could have known, things deteriorated and a, a million um, Rohingya, 800,000 in the matter of a month become refugees. And we don't know how many, but tens of thousands are killed. And, um, and the UN is calling it a genocide. And with time, the US and the State Department are saying it's a genocide as well. And that's, and that's in August. And again, this is the point where I finally started to open my eyes and to learn about it and to say, wait a second, I, we knew already, Israel knew that it was selling those weapons. And, and is it stopping? Was there any statement of Israel that we're stopping to sell the weapons? So um, actually a, a little bit, just a few, I think months, maybe even weeks before, uh, before the genocide in August, I met with a group of rabbis with a former head of uh, of the defense ministry, former director of the defense ministry. And we met with him in a private meeting. Um, and, and it came up, it came up as a, as a thing. Uh, and, and yet, um, and yet Israel ostensibly, as far as anyone knew, Israel never came out as, as countries, as other countries who were weapons exporters will come out and say, now, given the situation in X country, we're no longer saying it. Israel didn't come out and say that, but it was discussed in the Supreme Court in September behind closed doors in complete confidentiality and and without any public knowledge about the Supreme Court's decision um, in the end. So even though this was something where there was public knowledge about the Israeli export, um, as always happens with these cases, as always happened with these cases, the Ministry of Defense asks to share information. And at the end of the day, the decision is confidential. We don't know what happened. A number of, that was in September, um, the genocide was ongoing. The refugee problem was getting worse and worse and worse. Um, a number of months later, we started to hear, oh, Israel stopped its, its sales of weapons um, sometime in the summer. Kind of ambiguous statements about that. 
with time, it, it became clear that Israel actually did stop all of its weapons exports to, uh, to Burma, um, but it took until somewhere around January. It took until January, meaning after a petition and after it was already going on. So for me, it's a very, very powerful example. And, and for me, again, because we know so little, um, you have to take the things you do know and, and extrapolate to apparently what the... Um, what are the what's the decision making process and how much are things being taken into account? Here's an example of a country we knew um, was was heading towards genocide and we continued selling them all the way through the genocide. We knew and we stopped somewhere some number of months afterwards. It's not a country that we have a tremendous amount of security interests. It's not a country that we have a tremendous amount of diplomatic need for their support. What? So, so you ask what? What is it that motivates it? And I say the the answer is there. There's money that that's involved, and money isn't. You know, it, it's it's not all dirty. It can be used for important things. It's important. The economy is important. I I and di- diplomacy is important and there are di- diplomatic reasons to to want to be in trade relations with the country and there's security reasons to want to be in, in trade relations with the country put all those together and look at me what could possibly be the interest the israeli interests that could justify arming a genocidal regime like how could we thinking about what we want israel to be how could we construct a picture that could possibly um, that could possibly justify that. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I have a pretty good imagination, uh, but I don't have, I, I, I don't have a good enough imagination um, that could provide a moral justification. Do you want to say if we, Israel as a country will be obliterated if we do not sell weapons to someone who we know is going to commit genocide? I think that's, a, I mean, even that is, is a real moral question because we're not talking about someone who is threatening us. We're talking about defending ourselves from somebody else by killing a, a party that, that poses no threat. So even in the most extreme, extreme cases, I think it's a moral question. But the, the facts on the ground, is, as well as we're able to see, is that in many, many, many cases, and again, tip of the iceberg, in many cases, Israeli companies are getting licensed by the Israeli government to sell weapons, to sell technologies to places we know are using them in ways that that we would um, that that completely undermine our moral commitments, um, and uh, and that's all happening. So we could probably go on, and you could get me even more depressed by giving other examples of other countries where Israel's doing this sort of thing. Yeah, we could go decade by decade. Go South Africa and Latin America in the 70s and the 80s and Rwanda in the 90s. When did it start, by the way? When did Israel start doing this? Um, it, it started in the 70s. It started actually, it, it started because Israel um, needed to, to export weapons in order to make weapons. And that's still true. Israel's a is a small market and in order to develop the weapons we need in order to defend ourselves we need to also be uh, be selling them because we're not a big enough market to buy all of the weapons that we need to, to develop um, and that's and there's a, a again a, a legitimate argument that is that is made there um, and and so that's why it started it started because we needed to develop our own weapons because other countries weren't willing to sell us weapons after 67 right with the French and so forth stopping there 
Okay, so we could talk about all of this and we should revisit it and, and maybe do a column about it and all of that. But um, before we talk about the organization that you're intimately involved with in founding and creating Yan Shuf and how it works and what its strategy is, I just want to ask you one other quick question, which is, you know, I think of myself as a fairly knowledgeable Israeli citizen. You know, I read a couple of papers every day and I listen to the radio and I'm always on the internet and my friends, like your friends, are all people who are involved in all kinds of things. But if you had said to me a couple of weeks ago, name the 10 most critical moral issues facing the Jewish state, or that the Jewish state needs to quote unquote rethink or maybe even clean up its act, however one wants to put it, I don't think, until someone put us in touch and I started to learn about the work that you're doing, I don't think that the issue of Israel's arms exports would have even crossed my mind as one of the candidates. In other words, yes, I'd heard about it, but it just, you know, I could think of the conflict with the Palestinians and I can think of carbon footprint and I can think of threats to the press and threats to democracy and relationship with American Jews that we have not handled well and a thousand other issues. And if someone had said, well, what about market exports? I would have said, oh, yeah, that's actually also really important. I hadn't thought about that. But why wouldn't I think about that? And why I think am I like many, many Israelis who are decent human beings who care deeply about Israel being a, a moral country? Why has this issue not gotten the traction that you clearly think it needs to get? And I'm guessing a lot of our listeners also want it to get. It's a really good question, and I, I don't have a, a clear answer. I, I asked myself the, the same question. I asked myself, how could it be that I didn't hear about it, and how could it be? But it's funny, because actually, sometimes I have conversations, and people are like, I had no idea. And sometimes I have conversations, and people are like, oh, yeah, my uncle, cousin, brother, oh, did went to this country in order to train those. And the, so, um, so, it's, so, so they're both of those um, th that exist. Um, I... When you're talking about the weapons export industry, um, it's it's kind of a dark, dark world in general, um, and it's not hard to to get kind of conspiratorial. I don't like getting too involved in in conspiracies. It's certainly true that there is a, a lot of money that is invested in this being able to continue, and people with both with money and with a lot of power um, who are very invested in this being able to continue. Um, and, and so there's definitely that. Um, it's, it's interesting that when the stories come up, it, with the NSO story being one example where it's a huge story internationally, NSO was, was impossible to ignore completely in Israel, and, and there were more headlines than we would just, but then it, it got quieted down really quickly. Um, they, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot invested in, in making sure that this kind of stays quiet and that not too many people know about it. And for me, that's actually hopeful because I, mm. I, I feel like um, there is a sense that if, if, um, if the Israeli people knew about this, they wouldn't accept it. And that's, um, I guess, part of the goal of what you're working on, right? Right. So tell us a little bit about the organization that you founded called Yan Shuf, why it's called Yan Shuf, what the strategy is, how do you aim to make a difference? So as I, as I learned about this and I was convinced and convinced and compelled by it and, and really compelled that it's, in my eyes, um, it's, it's the worst moral issue today in, in Israel. It's the worst moral violation because it, it's something that's happening with official Israeli government approval. And it's something where we are, um, look, I'm somebody who comes you know, from the religious world, you could say from the right, I live in Efrat. 
Um, I'm not somebody who thinks Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. Um, and, and I think there are problems with our human rights record. And I don't think that, that we are, um, that we're blameless. And I think we need to do better. But I certainly don't think that we're doing all of the most terrible things that we're accused of in the world um, intentionally against Palestinians with no, um, with, 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 with no um, criticism internally about that. But we are enabling countries that do all of those things, meaning all of the worst things that we are accused of, we are certainly uh, and incontrovertibly enabling, giving the weapons to and the training to, to governments that, that are involved in that. So for me, it's, it's really compelling. So I was, Well, more than compelling, I just want to interrupt you for one second. I apologize. But you said something really important before. It's kind of just, you just sort of let it go by. You said it's the worst moral stain on Israel now. I mean, people can agree or disagree, but that's a very powerful statement from someone like yourself that this is the biggest heaviest, darkest moral stain on Israel's conscience. I just want to sort of let that hang there for a second because I think it just it just can't be, it should not be glossed over and you just yeah. sort of said it. I think you tell this story so often that it's so obvious that this is the case, uh, but I just wanted to go back and revisit that. Okay, so now tell us, you're hopeful because you would like to think that if Israelis knew about this, they would actually be yeah. enraged and brought to, and right. I think it's also super important what you said about how there's an irony here. We're not doing all of those terrible genocidal things that we are accused of when it comes to the Palestinians, but we're actually ironically enabling other people to do similar kinds of things across the ocean and so on and so forth, which is a great irony, sad, painful. Well, more than an irony, what it is is also tremendous, tremendous um, ammunition for critics of Israel. Oh, Israel, you're claiming that you don't do this, but here, look, we see very clearly, and the whole world sees that you are enabling the the genocide of Muslim minority in Burma. So, are we meant to believe that all of a sudden, when it comes to your own Muslim minority, you're so much more moral? You are enabling um, the use of all these technologies against all of these other oppressed minorities. Are you so? So, there's tremendous, tremendous ammunition um, that 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 it provides, and and tremendous criticism. Um, I just about the, the biggest moral stain uh, statement, I, I think I also glossed over because I know it's a statement that um, it, it kind of it's like them's fighting words. It's like, oh, that's the biggest. No, I think something else is the biggest. So I, I put it out there. I'm glad you I'm glad you emphasized it. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to engage with people about why I think it is. I have a whole list of reasons um, why why I think it is. Um, um, but, but I said to myself, okay, what do I do? What do I do about, what, what can I do about this? I'm just a guy. I'm just an educator. I'm just a teacher. What can I do? So I started educating myself and I started talking to people and I started having more and more conversations. And one of the amazing things that I found is nobody's working on this. As we said, people don't know about it. And, you know, when you talk about the conflict, there are tens and tens of organizations that work on it. And you talk about almost any, any social ill in Israel. Um, there are multiple organizations, and here there was no organization. So, so here I am with Eli Yosef um, organizing protests, and we got some people, and sometimes more, and sometimes less. But the other thing that was fascinating about those protests is um, there was one protest we organized where Yehuda Glick and Tamar Zandberg um, and Moshe Feiglin came and spoke at the protest, and the, um, the activists of Meretz and the activists of, of Zehut meaning the far right and the far left. Right, Moshe Feiglin being a far right, extremist far right Israeli politician and Tamar Zandberg being a far left Israeli politician, at least getting together on this. And, and getting together on this, which is on the one hand, 
nobody's doing anything about it, nobody knows about it. And on the other hand, it's like everybody can agree on it. And I think everybody, and again, it, it, it's, a, it's an axiomatic belief for me that, um, that the large, large majority of Israelis, if you ask them straight up, do you think we should be making money arming genocidal regimes? I'll say, no, we don't want to make, we have other ways to make money. We don't want to make money that way. Okay, money is good. It can be used. Okay, diplomacy, but let's do it other ways. Like, we're talking about selling arms to, to Africa. We sell a lot of things to Africa that, that make it a better place to live, that's safer and, and, and healthier for people. So, 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 so the main, main thrust of, of Yanshuf um, Yanshuf is, is, as you said, it's an acronym. In, in Hebrew, it's Yud, Nun, Shin, Vav, Pei. It's Yitzu, Neshek. Weapons, Export, Shkifut, Transparency, Vipikuach, and Oversight. Transparency and Oversight over, uh, over Weapons Export. And, and that's what we're looking for. In a way, it's a, uh, it's a very, very simple goal. Um, and, and that's also part of the, how morally compelling it is to me because some problems are very, very um, big but they're also very complicated to solve. And so you can understand why it takes a long time to solve them, it takes a lot of organizations. Here, actually, the, the, the answer is simple. The, the answer is extraordinarily simple because the, the answer is if, if Israel had a law, um, at least let's say the first step to the answer, if Israel by law would have a committee that looks at human rights records of countries and says, here is our blacklist. Here are the countries which you cannot justify selling arms to. And that list would be something transparent as it is in all other Western countries, which really all have this kind of legislation. Um, and that way there would be public knowledge about it. The, the mechanism, the Israeli mechanism exists already. In other words, the, the oversight already exists, but the problem is it's not using um, a, a moral compass. Um, and it's not using a moral compass. It, it, it claims the Ministry of Defense oversees all of the exports, and they say that they take the moral issue into account. But I, I can't see how much weight it has if you're selling, again, to, to Burma. So, so what's needed is a, a kind of a moral red line. That legislation um, is easy to pass. It exists. It's written. Yuda Glick and Tamar Zandberg tried to push it forward, and it got stopped. Chilik um, Bar tried to push it forward. There are, there are Chavrei Knesset today in the in the coalition. There are MKs today who are behind it, who want to push it forward. Um, but they're not willing to commit political suicide over it. Who's and, opposed to it? Um, who's opposed to it is um, is the Ministry of Defense. The Ministry of Defense has... But, but, that's, of a, but they they're not in the government. In other words, if it gets brought to the plenum of the Knesset, who's going to vote against it? Um, once the Ministry of Defense has... Once the Ministry of Defense has a has an opposition, so that's a very very significant opposition that's taken into account in the in the steps to getting towards legislation. So so right now, um, the person actually who would, who has been putting a stop to to it is is Benny Gantz, who is the Ministry of Defense. Um, he um, is actually someone who has made the claim that since he became Minister of Defense, um, he created a committee that now oversees. Um, and makes decisions in order to ensure that we're really, uh, you know, holding to the highest moral standards as far as weapons export. And, and it could be, it, it may have been possible to, to believe him until the NSO, um, the NSO issue blew up this past summer. And, and you ask yourself, well, what about all of, the, all of the cyber weapons that have been sold in the last year and a half since, since you've been there? And what does Benny Gantz have to say about that? 
So going back to the to the NSO and the, and the hushing up of that, there was a um, there was a meeting in the uh, in the Vadat Chutz Bitachon in the um, in the the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee. But that meeting was confidential. We don't know what happened in the meeting. We don't know what was said in the meeting. Benny Gantz is actually someone who, who I protested against and, and Eli Yosef had actually also protested against and who actually promised us and said, when I am in power, when I am uh, in the government, we will not sell these weapons. But um, the, the, the proof is, is in the pudding. And, and when you look at, at the, the facts on the ground, they, they don't uphold it. And I would say more, even if 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 it was true, if it was true that Israel was stopping these sales, so what interests do we have not to make it a law and not just some kind of murky, shady internal mechanism that nobody talks about? And what interest do we have not to be transparent about it? The opposite. It's tremendous ammunition, as we said to the to all of the Israel haters. Israel should be coming out and should be the first to say, no, we do not sell to this country and that country. And is that going to, are we going to take a hit diplomatically? Maybe, but it's worth it for us. So... So the legislation exists, but but what we need for the legislation to be able to really move forward, what we need to be able to soften the the opposition in the Ministry of Defense, because I think in the end of the day we could find the way to 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 get around or to or to soften to find the support for this, um, because again it's what Israel says it's doing all along. We need massive public support. That's what we need. We need Israelis to to say they care about this, and we don't just care about our own troubles here, and we don't just care about our own cottage cheese, and we don't just care about our own human rights violations here. We also care very much about what Israel's weapons are doing all over the world, and we're not willing to be um, to be indifferent. Um, to that. And so that's really the goal of Yan Shuf is to raise awareness and and to start to create and to connect that um, that that public approval and for, for this issue. And so of among our listeners, people want to find out more about the work that you're doing, uh, where can they turn to find out about the organization? So right now, as I said, the there was no organization and so what I've been doing over the past number of months with a number of other partners is is to build an uh, an official organization. So our website hopefully soon will be up and running. When it is up and running, but it's not yet. It will be Yan Shuf with two O's, Y A N S H O O F dot org. Um, and for now you can find us on Facebook. And on Facebook we are at Yan Shuf Coalition, and that's with a U. Um, and we'll update that so that it'll be consistent. But right now it's Yanshuf Coalition, Y-A-N-S-H-U-F Coalition, um, after the, the Facebook.com. Um, and, you can, and you can connect to us that way. Um, and, uh, you know, really, in, I mean, in, in building this, um, this coalition, um, there have been so many, as I said, you know, from the right and from the left, there's such a broad... Um, base of, of consensus from the because I come from the religious world, so I started being active from within the religious world and from within the rabbinic world, um, and and rabbinic voices like as far to the right as Rav Shlomo Aviner have been very very outspoken about this, um, as well as Rav Yaakov Ariel, as well as Rav Yaakov Meidan and Rav Yuval Sherlo and Rabbi Benny Lau, so a whole assortment and around the Myanmar issue we had a, a long uh, a long list of of rabbis, male and female rabbinic leaders um, who, who, who signed on to a letter saying to, to the, the president that we need to put a stop to this around the Myanmar issue. So there have been many, many names um, from the right and, and also from the left um, who, who really support this issue. Um, and what we really, really need now is, is the people and the voice of the people to, to be heard about this. Um, people ask me, listen, I'll be down here, like, you know, 
if you wanted to choose a, a cause to be active and you can uh, choose something maybe a little bit easier you want to choose something a little more pot like is it really possible to do anything um and and i say what first of all i didn't really choose this i really feel like i, I feel compelled i feel like i would be happy being an educator and 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 that's a very very good thing and i and i love that but, but i can't be a citizen of a country that is authorizing this as a citizen of a democratic country that's authorizing this that's my responsibility the only thing that can stand up to this in a democratic country is the voice of of the people and i do think that that there is a critical mass to to make that change um again israel is is very very exceptional to the in the negative sense um if you look at all of the other major weapons exporters israel is one of the top 10 weapons exporters in the world, in absolute terms. Uh, if you look at all of the other weapons exporters, so there are countries, Western countries like America and Germany and France, um, but all those countries have, have legal limits. It doesn't mean they're perfect, doesn't mean they're, but they have legal limits. Um, and when they don't uphold their, those moral limits, there's transparency and citizens are able to say something and do something about it. So there are protests and, um, and then the other group is uh, North Korea and China and Russia. And, and Israel right now, sad as it is to say, uh, is, is in that category. It's in the category of, of the countries that are selling um, to, to any country with, with no moral limitations that we can see. So just two things. First of all, when the, uh, when the website is up, you'll let me know, and we'll send out an update for people who are interested in this with the link, and people can follow up and learn more and, and be involved in to whatever extent that they want. Uh, I'll just start with a personal statement that this is, for me, both very troubling, but also very inspiring. Um, you know, you and I both know that one of the big questions about Zionism is, well, is there really Zionism after May 14th, 1948? I mean, if Zionism was about building the Jewish state, so why didn't Zionism just declare victory right after Ben Gurion read the Declaration of Independence right before Shabbat that day and say, we won and now we're done. Uh, but we're clearly not done, right? I mean, because what, what matters about this country for you as an immigrant, for me as an immigrant, and for many of us who've chosen to make our lives here uh, is because we wanted to be that generation that continued to build. There was a generation that built the national water carrier and there was a, a generation that built the infrastructure and bought electricity and roads to the Galilee and the Negev. And there was an... There was a generation that did all sorts of things, and you and I moved here in years and were the beneficiaries of all that. Uh, but the kinds of issues that you're talking about are hopefully the kinds of issues that our children and grandchildren will look back at our generation and say, and that's what they did. They came to find a place that was infinitely more developed than it had been 50 years earlier, uh, but it had its moral challenges, and they didn't sit on their hands, and they didn't just go to work and come home and watch Netflix, which I do a bit, but um, they actually tried in some ways to, to make the country better and to make the country more moral and to make the country one of which the Jewish people can be even prouder than we quite rightly already are. So as a fellow citizen who really is just learning about the work that you're doing, I want to thank you not only for your time today, but for the extraordinary commitment that you are making to this. Uh, and I look forward to our having another conversation down the road when we can point to successes that you've had and to legislative projects progress that's been made uh, and to improvements in this uh, what is undeniably uh, a critical issue for the state of Israel. So thank you again for your time and for all the work that you do. Thank you. Thank you so much for, for the platform. I, I wish I did more. That's, that's the truth. Um, but I think many, 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 many people doing even a little bit is actually going to be able to make a huge difference here. So I hope this gets out and, and further and further. Thank you. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. 
Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas. Yeah.